two of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, but God. I call them irresistible interruptions. And this summer, we're going to be looking at about 12 or 13 of the but God scriptures in the Bible. And I trust you'll walk with me now for several weeks and seeing the beautiful ways in which God sovereignly, and yet from our perspective, uh, suddenly interrupted our life with his, with, with his character and conduct. The first one I think is a classic passage. It's Romans 5, 8. You take your Bibles and turn there. It's the first of our but God irresistible interruptions. Romans 5, 8. It's in fact what we're going to call this week our take-home verse. And we'll call each um, primary verse, we'll call that our take-home verse each week. So we normally have like a take-home truth a succinct statement to kind of tuck in your pocket and take with you this week. Well, this time we're just simply going to let the singular verse that contains the phrase, but God, be our take-home verse all week, and we'll just memorize it together as a church. And this week, our opening one is Romans 5, 8, in which this is what the Bible says to us. Read it with me, would you? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the beautiful first two words, but God. Now notice the word but there. It's a pivot word. It's a word of contrast. So it's showing that something's happening now that's different than what's happened before it. So we must understand that this, this contrast in this singular verse is embedded into a context. And I believe that context probably best and most immediately begins in verse 6. We could probably make a strong argument that it begins in verse one, but for sake of time, I want us to begin in verse six, in which we see the context in which this contrast is embedded, all right? So I'm gonna read for you verses six through 11. This is the, the uh, passage in which we find this singular, classic, beautiful, first but God interruption. Follow along with me in verse six. He says, for while we were still weak, and that comes after the statement in verse 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So God's love has been poured into us. But watch what he says in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So ungodly is referring to the word us in verse 5. So Paul's saying God's love occurred and took action when we were weak. Christ died for the ungodly then. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Powerful passage with a powerful singular verse. I want to answer three questions from this verse and then make one strong application that's very relevant to our current uh, time we're living in. I want to answer the what question the how question, the why question. First of all, when it comes to the what question, what's happening here? I think we could say in no uncertain terms that there's a reversal occurring because of Romans 5.8. There's definitely a contrast, and I'd say it's a reversal of outcomes. Okay, there's first of all a reversal in thinking. 
We're seeing that God doesn't think about love or act in love the way we do. Do you see the beginning of this context, this passage? Verse seven talks about how you, you may could find someone to die for a righteous person, possibly for a good person. So maybe that's a progression that a righteous person is one who just does the acts of the law and is legally right. The good person being the person who is not only doing the right things, but uh, we could say has the sentiment and heart emotion about the right things. Perhaps it may just be repetition only, but either way, what he's saying here is that it would be difficult. It would be scarce. It would take courage. thus the word use of the word dare to find someone who would, would possibly die for a really good person. But that's how we think. We think in those terms, like if they're really good, if Joe or Jill, if they're really good, way better than me, then perhaps they should stay on the earth instead of me, more good will be done. So maybe scarcely, possibly, you'd find somebody to die for somebody who's really good. But God doesn't think that way. And God doesn't act that way. The Bible says that, that God loves sinners. God takes action on behalf of those who are the worst. And I'd remind you, this is Romans 5. Prior to this, in the first three chapters, Paul levels the playing field and clearly says that all have sinned. So it's perfectly right and biblical and theologically correct for you to say you're in the sinner category. <laughs> and so am I. It's when that was true about us that God showed his love, sent Christ to die for us. God's Thoughts and action about love are reversed from ours. That's one thing the contrast shows. It also shows this, that because of God's love, there's a reverse in our status. Look with me at the text, would you? And notice between 6 and 11, some before and after descriptions. I mean, you've seen pictures, right, where there's a before and then there's an after. And sometimes your jaw drops like, wow, what a difference, Right? Look at this before and after situation. I'll begin in verse six. The Bible says that we were weak, ungodly. Verse eight, we were sinners. And verse 10, we were enemies. Yeah, that's the descriptors of us, of you and me. But God's love moved on our behalf. Christ died for us. And so we've become, I'll begin again in verse nine, we've become justified. Look at verse nine. We are now saved. As you get into verse 10, you see the word reconciled mentioned twice. Again, the word saved. So do you see the before and after? Weak, ungodly sinners, unreconciled. But now because of God's love, we are reconciled. We're friends. We're saved. We're justified. Wow, this is such a beautiful um, description really uh, of what took place because of God's love. A reversal, not only in thinking, in other words, God doesn't think like we think, but a reversal in our status, in our, in our outcomes. Now, how did this occur? We've been saying by God's love and by Christ's death, but how about some more insight into the second question? How did this occur? Well, I want to show you the beginning part of verse eight. This is our primary verse. We'll come back to it several times. This verse says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in play here are the first two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. They're the ones who are making possible, 
who are, who are initiating and activating and, and doing the work of this reversal of our status. This is God's work on our behalf. I'll show you some other words in this passage that would lean that way. Look at verse nine. It says that we've now been justified by his blood. That's a word that kind of talks about death, the shedding of Christ's blood. You keep moving here. It says in verse nine that we've been uh, saved by him from the wrath of God. Wrath is a word of punishment. Understand this church, that because of God and Christ, this is theologically accurate, but humanly impossible to grasp. Listen very carefully. You have been saved by God, to God, from God. Now when we say from God, we mean from God's wrath. But make no mistake, there is a punishment to sin and sinners. But because of God's love and because of God's son, we can be saved by God, to God, from God's wrath. He says in verse 10 that we have been reconciled by the death of his son. Again, there's a word that describes the coming of Christ and his crucifixion. It says, though, that much more now that we are reconciled by his death, we shall be saved by his life. I think that's an implicit reference to the resurrection, indicating that the, the death of Christ was where our atonement occurred and the resurrection is the guarantee that we'll be raised again one day and will not suffer eternal death. So what you're seeing here really is simply the, the, the outlining, so to speak, of the gospel that God sent Jesus to die in our place and be raised again so that we would be saved, justified, reconciled. It's simply the gospel laid out for us here. Aren't you thankful for the gospel that God stepped in on your behalf, took action in your lost condition and sent Jesus to die in your place and in doing so, reconciled you to himself. None of this is because of your action. None of this is because of your earning or merit. Remember, we were weak, ungodly sinners, but God stepped in for us and of his own initiative and by his own character and action loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. This is great news every week we rehearse it. I just hope right now your heart's pounding. It's being massaged by the Holy Spirit. Over, oh, what's happening in your heart is what's happening in verse five of this same chapter when it says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That right now as you just start hearing the gospel rehearsed in your ears, you're just so thankful that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that you're no longer an enemy but you're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter. This is great news, church. Now, I realize that most of you here in this room, most of you listening in our youth room or perhaps online, perhaps many of you have trusted Christ and you've put your feet on this bit of news, on this gospel. You're thankful, your heart is pounding, you're, you're all smiles, you're, you're, you're rejoicing. But there may be some here in this room, there may be some listening, some watching, who are skeptical, they're, they're curious, they're just not ready to cross the threshold of faith yet. And to you, I want to say this, God loves you. It's seen proof positive that he sent Christ to die for you. Would you this morning cross that threshold of faith and put your trust in Jesus Christ? Would you believe that God loves you and has reconciled you to himself through Jesus? And would you just believe in the beautiful, good name of Jesus as the only way to be saved? Perhaps that's happening in this room right now. Maybe you're sitting in a chair and you're thinking, yeah, that's me. I have not yet believed, but I see this morning that God loves me, that he showed that through Christ. 
I want to trust Christ. Then a simple prayer like this is how you can express that to God. Say, God, I do believe that you came in the person and work of Jesus Christ to pay for my sin. And only through Jesus can I be reconciled, made right with you. So God, would you save me through Jesus this morning? Whether you're here in this room, watching online in our youth room, God will save all who call upon him. He's the only one who can save. And if you've done that already, if you said, that's me this morning, Todd, this morning I put my faith in Christ I want to say welcome to the family, first of all. And second of all, I want to say this, kind of a challenging note. Why don't you tell the rest of the church by getting baptized? You say, Todd, that seems like an odd thing to say. Shouldn't you have me fill out a card or text in my commitment or something like that? Did you know that in the Bible, one of the best ways people, and actually one of the first ways that people demonstrated their faith was by simply getting baptized. It actually was the, the first and best invitation, We'll use that word. In Acts 2, when Peter preached the first message of the church there, to over 3,000, the Bible says that all who heard him and accepted his word were baptized. And so I want to say this to you just as, uh, in a humble, honest way. We're baptizing June 23rd at Big Creek State Park. We've got some shelters reserved. We have a great church time up there. And if this morning you've trusted Christ, let us know. We'll be available after the, in the front afterwards. You can text our question number. You can fill out a digital connect card and let us know. But say, hey, I, this morning, man, I put my faith in Jesus and the God who loves me. I've repented and confessed Christ as my only Savior and I believe he died and was raised for me. So yes, I'm ready to get baptized. Or maybe you've been saved for a while and never biblically baptized. I want to exhort you and kind of nudge you with a knee in the back a little bit. Let's follow the Lord in the next step of obedience and be baptized and make a clear statement that we are trusting in God's love as seen in Jesus to save us. So that's the how answer. We've answered what, we've answered how, but I think the bigger question that we need to wrestle with and that we should be overwhelmed by is the why. When we can factually answer the what, these contrasts, these reversals that are occurring, we can see how it occurs from God and Christ and the Spirit, yes, but why would this occur? And the answer in short is God's love. It's again back in verse eight. But God shows his love for us. And by the way, this love in this text is a surrounding kind of love because you don't put this love into the before or after category necessarily. You don't say, well, he didn't love us, but now he does. And you don't say, well, he used to love us, but now he doesn't. God's love surrounds the entire process. He is love. And all of his interactions with us are loving. He loved us while we were sinners. He loves us now that he's made us saints. God's love surrounds the entire process. And so we want to say quickly and clearly that God's love is the root reason that we've been reconciled. It's the fundamental and we could use the word cause of our reconciliation. Now, hear this, church. We could say a lot more about God's love. We won't today, but we want to. We will. We should. We, we could say a lot more about God's love. It's discerning. It's unconditional. It's eternal. I mean, God's love is a, a vast ocean to swim in. Hallelujah, right? So we could say a lot about God's love. But, but we for sure must at least say this about God's love today that it is the root reason we are reconciled. God moved from within himself. God acted out of his own character and nature on your behalf, on the behalf of sinners, to bring us to himself. 
There wasn't anything that, that you did. Wasn't anything you merited. I didn't deserve it. We didn't, you know, move God on our behalf. God moved on his own initiative out of his love for sinners to save us and reconcile us. This is beautiful. It's, it's just fantastic that God's love is demonstrated when he sent Christ to die for us. The reason that we're reconciled is at its root, the love of God. Now, I wanna bring some evidence for that by showing you a number of scriptures that prove that point, all right? That's a strong assertion. There's theological implications by it. There's practical meaning to it. Todd, can you back that up? Can you say and prove to me that, that God's love is the root reason we're reconciled, that he sent Jesus to die for us? I think I can. Let me show you some verses that will connect God's love and the sending of God's son and show the, the really fundamental connection. That this is the least we want to say for sure, okay? And I think the one that tops the list would be one you all know by heart. Whether you're watching, listening, or here live, can you say John 3, 16 with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see the connection there? I mean, the, the verse that most children learn early, right? And this is beautiful. God loves and so God gave his son. John would write again in 1 John chapter four, he writes these words. He writes that, that in this, the love of God was made manifest. And the word made manifest there means to display or to bring a light to. In fact, the word made manifest is the word from which we get our word fluorescent. So in this is how God's love is seen. It's, it shows up that God sent his only son into the world. Isn't that beautiful? That's how we see God's love, that he sent Christ to be our reconciler. He says later, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the word there is satisfactory payment. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20 about this idea of God's love. And this phrase is kind of tucked away in this verse, but he's speaking of, of, um, of living for Christ by faith. But look at this phrase tucked in here. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see the continuing connection? He would also write this in Ephesians chapter two, verse four. Here's another but God verse that Travis is gonna speak on next week. So he gets this fantastic verse. It says that God is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. Again, this connection between God's activity on our behalf and the love he has for us. The Old Testament declares this as well in several places. Here's just one, Psalm 86, how God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That steadfast love, that continuing commitment to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to fulfill his promises to his people. Let's go back to 1 John. Look what he says here about God's love. It says, we have come to know and to believe that the, the love of God that he has for us. Now, why would John say we've come to know and believe the love God has for us? It's because in the first part of his epistle, he was writing about how he had seen Christ he was in contact with Christ. He says that we saw the, the one who was the son of God. We, we touched him. We were in contact with him. We stayed with him. And so as they saw Jesus, as they saw the Christ, they realized this is how we know the love of God. So again, there's connection between God's love for us and the sending of his son. Paul would ask in Ephesians chapter three, 
that God's love, Christ's love, would be the, 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 the thing that they would be able to get their hands around in a 4D fashion. Look at this verse. He says, I'm praying you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So God's love is of paramount importance to the Apostle Paul and to the church there at Ephesus. Man, know God's love in all of its 4D fullness. But perhaps the verse that is most striking to me that speaks of, of God's love and Christ's coming and, and this incredible um, nature of it is 1 John 3.1. Of course, it's by John. John seems to write the most about God's love, okay? He writes in 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now remember, how are we made children of God based on Romans 5? It's because Christ came and died for us. He was buried, he was raised. In other words, Christ took our place, so we moved from, from enemies to friends, to family, from sinners to saints. And John here is saying, this is an amazing kind of love that the Father's given to us that we should be called his children, that he should mastermind such an incredible reversal. What kind of love is that? Now, we'd all amen that. We'd all agree with that. But let me see if I can give you some further insight into what an incredible statement this is. When John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, here's the most literal way to translate that. In the Greek language, it would be like saying this, see what otherworldly love the Father has given to us. So if you were just to kind of write out the words in the Greek language, that's about the best and most literal way to get this out. See what other world love. In other words, John's in his mind, he's thinking this, like how do I, he's writing, how do I describe a love that's so different than anything I see on this planet? And so under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he writes, see what other world love the Father has given to us. I love that. I think it's beautiful. And it really echoes Romans 5, doesn't it? Because what is this world love? It's when you die and you love and you serve those who deserve it. Yeah, the good, the righteous. Yeah, we love those. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's an other world love, isn't it? That's a love we don't know much about. We've never even heard of that kind of love. Man, praise God for his other world love. If you're like me right now, you're having a hard time even finding words to express gratitude. You're finding it hard to even find words to express your emotion, but you're so deeply thankful, aren't you, that God doesn't love like we love, but that God loves with an other world love. In fact, you'll be doing what verse 11 says in our primary passage. When at the conclusion, he says more than that. And by the way, this is the third more than that in this text. Three times he says more than that, more than that, more than that. So he's kind of building this volcano-like uh, sense in which the, the final verse is this. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have no room for boasting in ourselves. We don't take a platform on our merit or our credit and say, Yes, God knew I would deserve his love. We just simply rejoice in God that his love is the root reason we've been reconciled to him. 
That's an other world love that's hard to get our hands around. But oh, the more we see, watch this, how greatly we are loved, the more we will love greatly. Perhaps the reason that we don't love greatly is because we spend most of our time trying to love with a this world kind of love. A love with a hook in it. I'll do for you if you'll do for me. Or love with an ulterior motive. A love where we think they've got to earn it, deserve it. But God's love is otherworldly. And so I want you to hear something this morning, church. I want you to hear this and just let this blanket you and rest in it. God loves you. Period. You know why you reject that and why you push back against that? Because you don't feel very loved sometimes. You don't feel like you deserve it and so you feel like you should and I should do something different and I should be better and you have all these thoughts that are probably from the enemy telling you why you don't deserve God's love but that's not what I said to you. I didn't give you conditions. I just made a biblically accurate, theologically sound statement to you that should stir our hearts that God loves you. Not because of you but in spite of you. He loves because of himself and he extends and lays that love on you. That's why he's God and that's why it's otherworldly. You see, you're thinking right now about the argument you had just before you came to church today in the parking lot perhaps, right? With your spouse. You couldn't hardly get out of the car without saying an unloving thing. <laughs> so you don't feel like you deserve anybody's love. Or you're thinking about what you said last night or what you did this week, that secret sin that nobody knows about. You said, Todd, if people found out that they wouldn't love me at all. Or you're thinking about what happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago and that sin just lodges in your mind. So many things you think, yeah, if people knew if God wouldn't love me. But see, you're missing the point. It's exactly in spite of those things that God still does what he does best. Listen to me, church. God loves you. And he proved it at the cross where Christ gave his life so that we could go from sinner to saint, enemy to family, condemned to justified, lost to saved. Aren't you thankful for the other world love of God? Now, with that ringing in your ears, I want to bring to you a very relevant application. Because I think when you look around, what we see happening is a lot of this world kind of love. Wouldn't you agree? When you look at all the injustice, the responses to it, the division, the brokenness, the things that are happening currently in our country, in our state, in our community... Man, it's a lot of this world kind of love. What we need now especially is a people so assured of and amazed at God's reconciling love and other world love that it will show up in our willingness to reconcile with others. 
I think it's very appropriate that at this point in our community's trajectory and timeline that we are actually beginning this series with an, an intense look at God's love because this is what's needed in this time in our community and in our country. Now, let me just be very clear with you on a couple of things. I'm not a cultural change artist, okay? I'm not a community active and an elected official. I'm not a politician. I'm not sure I would know what steps to take if I were in those positions. I'm praying for our leaders. I'm praying for those, uh, our citizens. I, I, there's just a lot we're all praying for, right? But here's what I do believe. Listen very carefully. And you can agree or disagree with me on this. I don't think our deepest problems are ideological. I don't think they're political. I don't think they're cultural. Based on what I read about God's love and the effect it has on his people, I think our deepest fundamental problem is theological. Now, you can expect a pastor to say that, correct? <laughs> That's the world we live in. But I think there's something to the fact that when we see that we have been reconciled by God, it will cause us to have a reconciling spirit with those around us for God's sake. So can I just make some practical application about maybe how to respond and, and live and maybe breathe and walk in this very divisive, tumultuous um, situation in which you're wondering if the next step's gonna be on a landmine or not, emotionally. I think another world love enables us to fundamentally act like God in how we love. Remember, God loved and sacrificed for sinners, okay? And we were not like him. We were estranged. We were away from him. We were unreconciled. But his love came after us in red hot reconciling pursuit. God was the initiator, the demonstrator. And so I believe that, that God's love forms the root. Again, like I said, not only of our reconciliation, but of our reconciling efforts. And so when I see God's other world love, I'll embrace differences. I'll value and appreciate those who aren't exactly like me, who may have some different opinions. We'll use the word of God as our plumb line and we can sit and have a conversation rightfully, hopefully peacefully about the best way forward. And in those conversations with God's word as the plumb line, here's what I think happens. God's love will expose and expunge things like classism, racism, sexism. It's God's love that brings to the surface where we're out of joint, where we're out of line and helps us make necessary corrections. That's why it's so important as the people of God that we become more and more enamored with God's love for us. Remember, those isms, classism, sexism, racism, you could put other made up words to it like groupism, jobism, ways to categorize people and, and say, well, you're worth this because you are like this or you're in that group or that category. And those are all devilish. They're divisive ways of thinking. And they can't be our filter for loving people when we accurately see God's love for us. Let me give you one practical illustration. I found it difficult. Been attacked in People of all sides at times, not a lot, but just misinterpretation here and there, criticism here and there, no matter where you kind of take your next step, you ever felt that way? I think it would help us a lot within church and our culture. If when we see 
God's other world love and we begin to live with that in mind that we will begin to stop pitting people against each other who actually want the same thing in the end. I'm not just speaking of our current racial tension in our country. I'm speaking even of the, the, the COVID-19 situation. I find it so interesting that even among pastors, how many people were suddenly grouping themselves based on gatherers or regatherers, no gatherers, uh, masks or no masks, uh, you know, distancing, have all these other kind of ways. And, and, and suddenly there's arguments and they're pitting people and they're cornering folks on some of these opinions when really we're all after the same thing, the health of the body, both physically and spiritually, is even in our, in our racial tension right now. A this world love wants to qualify everyone. In other words, they, they want to qualify justice. But, but that's not what the goal is, is to qualify. The goal is justice for all. And we admit there have been injustices. How do we address those as a people under the overwhelming love of God? Well, here's one way. Don't pit people against each other who actually want the same thing in the end, which is justice for all. For instance, we don't lump all protesters into some group of rioters and violent offenders. There may be, actually, there are just peaceful protesters who are using that legal system to let their voice be heard. And neither is every single policeman in the category of the rogue cop. Man, we have godly, helpful policemen who are using their office in the right way to punish evil and protect good, as Romans 13 calls them to do. You see, church, the, the, this world love wants to put all whites over here and all blacks over there and all Latinos over here and the unemployed there and the employed here. And they just want to put us in certain groups and then look at us that way. And that's not helping the situation. We should instead, with God's other world love, realize that variety with unity is actually God's idea. And we need a collection of spirit-filled prophetic voices calling out injustice, yes. And we need a, a, a God-ordained arm of law enforcement, like I said, to punish wrongdoers and to protect rightdoers. We need practical hands of Jesus-following citizens willing to work together to help heal brokenness and division. It's God's other world love that compels us to live and act this way in a reconciling way, not a destroying manner. When you hear this and you watch this, you may think, well, he's just making a statement. I'm not trying to make a statement. I'm not trying to side up. I'm trying to help the church navigate some very turbulent waters. You and I would both agree, our nation right now is in great need. Many of our values seem upside down. It's polarizingly split right down the middle. At times, it seems like our culture is no longer really a melting pot, but more like a burning hellhole. But listen, church, the problem is not just out there. The problem can be right here. And a heart that isn't grasping to know the 4D fullness of God's love could be prime for any of those isms or sins in which we would look at people wrongly. You see, we will love to the extent that we know we are loved. And this is why seeing God's love, the theological matter of seeing God's love biblically is so life crucial and life changing. It's especially true for the church. And I'm asking you this morning, 
Take a long, hard look at God's love through Romans 5.8 so that it will help you as you love others when you leave this room. Church, remember, God loves across colors. God loves across cultures. God loves across countries. God loves across classes. And again, I bring to you the theological basis for this. We're called to this type of life, not because of a legal law or a social construct or some kind of pressure from the outside. We are called because of God's own character to love across countries and classes and cultures, across all colors. This is how God loves. I remind you, Genesis 12, when God loved Abraham of his own initiative and will, his sovereign grace called Abraham. He said, Abraham, through you and your seed will all the ethnicities of the world be blessed. God was already thinking about how people from all different languages and colors and races would come to worship him through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. It's in God's heart. This is displayed also at Pentecost. When? I love this story. At Pentecost, there were nations from everywhere on the earth represented. And so all the nations heard this first sermon because God supernaturally gifted the church with this gift of tongues. They were speaking in languages that were known only to those who were hearing. They could hear them in their native tongue. And so when they left Pentecost to go back to the various regions of the earth and to these nations, guess what they took with them? The message of the gospel in their language, the news that God loves them and sent Jesus to die for them. This will be the, the picture in Revelation 7 when one day we gather around the throne and we'll be gathering. We'll be gathering with somebody, somebody from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. This is what history has shown. This is where history is headed. That God's love crosses all boundaries and barriers. It crosses cultures and countries and colors and classes. And his people should be the ones who live out that kind of love as well. That's why it's important for you to realize that we are wrestling with, as a church, a theological situation. How has God loved us? Then we will love in like manner. We will not love with a this world love. We will love with an other world love. So church, in closing, as I thought about this other world love, I, the Holy Spirit's nudged me to do two things as your pastor. And so I want to just end with these. I first of all want to ask about reconciliation. If God has been so loving to us as to reconcile us to himself, and then that should prompt us to live in a reconciling way with his love for us as the foundation. Perhaps it'd be good for me to ask you, is, are there any pockets of reconciliation that we need to address as a church? And you may think that's an odd question. Like, what's he asking? What's going on here? I've been stunned a little bit this week by Acts 6 in this way. That in that very first church, the apostles were not aware of how the Greek widows were being overlooked unintentionally in the distribution of food while the Jewish widows had no issue at all. Now, I'm not here to explain Acts 6 in detail today, except to say this. As I thought about that, I got to thinking, 
You know, there, no church leaders got the corner on the, on, the, on the market of knowledge. We don't have a situation. And could it be that perhaps we have different cultures and races in our church? And could it be that maybe some of them do feel the, the weight or the roadblocks or the hindrances of race in maybe accessing small groups or accessing counseling or receiving ministry? I don't know. I pray to God the answer is no, not here. But it would be somewhat arrogant and haughty to assume that we have no issues. So I just want to say this to you. If perhaps you would be someone who feels like for maybe race or even other issues, economical, um, something else, that you think, you know, Todd, I'm just having a difficult time accessing a small group or, a, or some counseling or ministry or some other thing that you feel maybe is a roadblock in really just being part of God's body and you can't seem to get over it. I'd like to hear about that. I would. I mean, I have an answer today, but I'll do all I can to work to see that that stopped. Just like in Acts 6, those men gathered the deacons together and man, they put an end to this kind of imbalance in the food distribution. If there's anybody in our church, whether you're in this room or just listening or watching, if you feel like there's been some type of pocket of, of where there needs to be some reconciliation because of maybe a roadblock that you just can't seem to get over, I want to have ears to hear that. It may be about a racial issue, could be about maybe a class issue. I don't know. Maybe a culture issue. Can we talk about it? I want to help pastor us so that we are aware of our blind spots and moving forward with other world love. Amen, church? And lastly, I want to ask you to pray for reconciliation with me. Like I said, I, I don't know what to do with what's out there. We're not the first to go through it, but we are the ones in it now. And I'm not smart to figure out every next move, but I do know this, and I believe this to the core of who I am. Prayer is always our first and best action. So will you pray with me for reconciliation in our country, in our state? Will you pray for reconciliation in our community and maybe within our church that we'd model the heart of God for peoples of all colors, classes, countries, and cultures, that we'd be one new man in Christ not Jew or Gentile or bond or free, but we'd be the new man in Christ. Pray for reconciliation. You can do that tonight by joining us from six to seven right here. We're gonna gather. We're just gonna pray in, in individual entities. We'll have things spread out. There'll be music playing. It'll be a real conducive atmosphere for praying. You can come in, you'll get a prayer prompt sheet, kind of guide you through some points. You can pray in 10 minutes and leave. You can pray for the whole hour. If you have other issues, if you want healing for things, prayer for healing or uh, maybe guidance, well, the elders will be here <clears throat> to pray over you and for you. So all that will be available tonight. But our root reason for gathering is to pray for reconciliation because I do believe deeply, fundamentally, that our biggest problem is theological. Because you always behave like you believe every time. And we're seeing a culture behaving with this world kind of love. And what we need is a church behaving with an other world kind of love. The kind of love that God's given to us. And the more it blankets us and envelops us and encompasses us, the more we're in awe of it, amazed at it, unable to explain it, but so thankful for it. The more that happens, the more we'll be able to love our neighbor as ourselves to be a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That will only happen to the extent that we 
see just how greatly we are loved. Because I remind you, we will only love greatly when we see how greatly we've been loved. And Romans 5, 8 is one of the quintessential verses that shows us how we've been loved, isn't it? Would you say it with me as we close, church? Romans 5, 8, together. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.